On today's episode of Two Witches, we are going to talk a lot about one of our favorite things. Bricks! That's right! It's time to nerd out over the history of what we call brick magic. I'm SJ. I still do what I want. I'm Andrea. And I do too. Welcome to Two Witches. Weird listener for joining us for another episode of Two Witches Podcast. Yes, thanks for being here for the latest broadcast from the cult of the Holy Donut Headquarters, St. Mojo Provides. Amen. Amen. Ah. And may the Holy Job Cat bless and keep you. Ah. Or at least help you snag a new job or promotion. I'm asking Job Cat for some help myself as yes. I'm about done with the bullshit at my current job. So let's hope that it works out as well as it usually does. Yes, I'm sure it will. And yeah, you're dealing with a lot of poo-poo at that job. Yeah. Some serious yeah. shit, yeah. But he's been helping quite a few of our followers, by the way. You can ask for his help yourself, too, and have him activated by visiting us on Twitter at Two Witches Pod. Yes, so check out Two Witches Pod if you need a job cat blessing. We've got your back. So let's talk about some old bricks. Old ass bricks. How I love old ass bricks. The truest of loves, really. Only you would fall in love with a brick, SJ. (laughs) Well, actually, you might be surprised because it turns out it's not quite as uncommon to be into bricks as the casual brick observer might believe. But there's nothing casual about our brick observing anymore. (laughs) Not one bit. So everyone that's listening probably knows I started to really get into bricks when I stumbled upon my first hidden in an antique store a couple years ago. It was 2019. That brick actually ended up being full of surprises as after several years of research, I determined finally that 1871 mother brick was actually made in 1971 for a hundred anniversary brick burn. That was such an important event. It actually made the paper because brick burns can go on for days. You finally dug it out. Amazing. It was making me crazy not knowing because I had conflicting information and I'm still getting the freeze out from the current generation of the Hidden Family. It's weird how that's the last piece of the puzzle you can't seem to quite catch. Yeah. I still haven't been able to get them to talk to me or get inside that old brickyard to look at any of the machines that are back there. It's quite tragic, really. (laughs) Anyway, I finally found out this info about the 1871 brick... Because, again, I had conflicting sources when I was doing my research when the Oregon Historical Society recently put their museum collection online because of COVID. Ooh, really? Sounds like more fucking geeky not to me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it turns out that in 2008, someone gave the museum an 1871 hidden and they had notes on its provenance. I'll link it into the show notes. Here's how geeky I am. So what happened was a gentleman donated this brick in honor of his brother, who was an architect, basically, and had written some papers on local Portland buildings. Now, they were in Portland, but they donated it hidden which was really interesting. And I haven't quite dug that out yet, but I pulled a lot of this gentleman's papers down off of JSTOR and a couple of other places and got to really geek out over some of the local Portland buildings. He wrote a paper on when they did the new remodel of the Portland courthouse and a couple of other things. So because of this brick, I ended up learning about this family that was heavily involved in Portland architecture and restoration. And it taught me a lot about how places like the Providence Academy could be restored. Mm. So that ended up like it was like another little gift that was 
presented because of that. Yes, that's interesting. Because I'm curious. I was curious. Who the hell donated this hidden brick? Yeah, and it also sort of gives you the information about, you know, they could be saving that building. There are ways to restore bricks. And one of the papers was about, like, the right pressure to pressure wash them and, the you know, like, the right pH, the water should be, you know, all the shit that yeah. the historic trust should have been doing the entire time. Yeah. That's, that so, is really interesting. That's super yeah. interesting. So that's who the family ended up donating this brick. And I kept digging into this particular issue because I recently obtained two 1971 bricks, one of which I sent to Andrea. And so again, like that 1971 mystery kept kind of pinging up. So I just kept digging and digging and just randomly found it when I saw that a local museum put their archives online. Hmm. That's really, really interesting. So my 1971 sits proudly in my living room along with that mysterious railroad bolt that Mm. likes to move around wherever they keep an eye on everything that goes on in our little household i just recently got from the thrift store a little redware tea set and i kept the plate from it the the big like tray which i'm big it's like five inches Mm -hmm. and i put one of the reactive things in the teapot and then i put the bolts on the clay and it seems to have just Oh, calmed it down. That's interesting. Yeah, so I'm noticing like the bricks kind of counteract the energy of the bolt of the bolt. Huh? Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, so I'll put a little picture of that so everyone can see yeah. that too if we keep that in here. Yeah. So yeah, we learned those bolts from the haunted Yakult Chilachi Railroad. You can see that on the Brick Mojo webpage yeah. too. There's a bunch of pictures from when Janet and I went out there and touched the train car, and it was all weirded out. Yakult's a very strange place. I don't know if I have been to Yakult or not. The Valley of the Haunting Place or Valley of the Demons or whatever is what it means. Yeah. Yeah. So look for the Farger Lake page on brickmojo.net. You can go dig into some of that and see some of the hauntings around that area. Very cool. So the twists and turns with that first 1871 brick kind of mirror this entire brick journey you know it's kind of like this little arc has wrapped up a little bit and it was layered with misdirections surprises secrets heartbreaks and elation at different points during the process my personal interest in bricks has gotten deeper than just the hiddens but of course hiddens remain my primary focus and my first love so today we are going to talk about all bricks and what we call brick magic which goes back Thousands of years, of course. We've talked before, I've always been just sort of an eclectic kind of chaos, which feeling my way through practice intuitively, through reading, instinct, trial, error. Recently, I've been researching and learning a lot more about brick use in ceremonial magic in the last couple of years. What I discovered from talking with our friend Mortellus, the biggest layer, is that I was actually doing a lot of these old brick magic rituals and intuitively topping intuitively copying these old brick magic rituals which kind of made me feel insane because I had no idea why I should know this stuff but apparently it's how I got Anubis's attention and Mortellus pointed out I'd been adapting old rituals from the Egyptian book of the dead for my own work and I've never heard of them so it was pretty surprising to find all of this out yeah you were blown away yeah So I dipped into bricks more and more, and I ended up deep in Kemetic or Egyptian beliefs. It's kind of hard to know where to begin when we talk about magic bricks because there's so much, but I think we should probably start with Babylon. Egyptian beliefs borrowed significantly from Babylon's beliefs, and they adapted old Babylon brick rituals for their belief system, too. Bricks are very important to Kemetic life, literally, from the moment of birth through death and the afterlife. The first person that caught my attention was Babylon's King Nebuchadnezzar II. His building program at Babylon used around 15 million amazingly strong baked bricks. Thousands bore his name and titles stamped into the clay. Nebuchadnezzar 
the eldest son of Nabopolassar, king of Babylon, am I. And by the way, any of these pronunciations we mess up, we're really sorry. We're yes. doing our best. Just roll with it, guys. Yes. The most impressive bricks that King Nebuchadnezzar was responsible for were used to construct the gates of Babylon, also known as the gates of Ishtar. It is a breathtaking structure made of red bricks that are surrounded by blue lapis lazuli stone. This same sort of idea was done in Beijing, China's Forbidden City, with its giant doorways. Major liminal spaces, anyone? No kidding. The blue lapis bricks making up the gates of Ishtar depict bull and dragon creatures that are called Mushosu, the sacred hybrid of Babylonian imperial god Marduk and his son Nabu. Mushosu are intended to be menacing to intruders. They have lion-like features and a snake's head that spouts horns. Their long forked tongues are prominently displayed, and sometimes they even spit fire as a warning. Marduk's original character is obscure, but he was later associated with water, vegetation, judgment, and magic. His consort was the goddess Sarpanit, the goddess of birth. Welcome to Brick Magic themes 1, 2, and 3, Judgment, Magic, and Birth. Mm-hmm. And Nebuchadnezzar reigned from about 605 to 532 BCE. The gates glazed blue bricks date to around 600 BCE. Some interesting mythology surrounding King Nebuchadnezzar is that he was a mixed breed giant who was appointed by Marduk himself, the patron god of Babylon. The translation of the inscription on the Ishtar gate allows the king to brag about his creation and his parentage, which admittedly is worth bragging about. He talks about how he was appointed by Marduk and his son, and describes how and why he built the gate. Both gate entrances of Imgur Elil and Nemedi Elil following the filling of the street from Babylon had become increasingly lower. Therefore, I pulled down these gates and laid their foundations at the water table with asphalt and bricks and had them made of bricks with blue stone on which wonderful bulls and dragons were depicted. I covered their roofs by laying majestic cedars lengthwise over them. I placed wild bulls and ferocious dragons in the gateways and thus adorned them with luxurious splendor so that people might gaze upon them and wonder. I let the temple of Aziskur Sikur, the highest festival house of Marduk, the lord of the gods, which was considered a place of joy and celebration for the major and minor gods, be built firm like a mountain in the precinct of Babylon of asphalt and fired bricks. That's a lot of work. Another of the big mysteries around this situation is that these bricks are stronger than any bricks modern man has been known to create, and no one really knows how they did it. Babylon's physical empire went all the way over to the Egyptian border, which is why the magic brick beliefs transferred to that part of the world also. Babylon, of course, fell in 539 BC to Cyrus the Great, who incorporated into the Persian Empire. It then fell again later to Alexander the Great and was abandoned after his death in 323 BC. Of course, Alexander the Great conquered Egypt as well, becoming Pharaoh. As far as the Blue Ishtar Gate's fate, it was dismantled, then rebuilt, and taken to Berlin's Pergamon Museum for display. There are pieces of the wall's reliefs in other museums, including the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. New York City? The ruins that were left in the city of Nimrud in Iraq were majorly damaged in the 2003 Iraq War and are currently in the process of an attempted restoration. Ugh, that makes me sick. Yeah. 
It's, I hate it. It's such a shame. Now, <laughs> this conversation is going to veer off into an insane conspiracy theory just for a second, but hang in there. Because the truth is, like most conspiracy theories, there might be a little nugget of truth tucked into some of this story. The first thing that happened, the very first thing that happened back in April 2003 when U.S. troops hit the ground in Iraq was they went to the National Museum of Iraq in Baghdad. They boxed up, crated up a bunch of priceless historical artifacts, most of them having to do with what they call Nephilim. And quickly packed them into helicopters and essentially stole them. Okay, that's pretty interesting. Yeah. My sister served in the army and she went over to Baghdad, spent a lot of time in the world. She was over in Saddam's Afal Palace and I always paid attention to the news in that part of the world because she was over there. She wasn't involved in this incident we're going to talk about, but I remember you know, learning about the Afal Palace and that it looks like it's, you know, this huge expansive, you know, amazing thing. It's all ornate, but most of it is just an illusion. And the chandeliers are all plastic, the gold isn't real it's got this artificial lake that saddam stocked a bunch of fish all this garbage that is interesting i nerded out a little over the fact that you called it an illusion and then i started thinking about liminal spaces and how so many liminal spaces seem to also be illusions i digress <laughs> so the army set up their command station here at the Afal Palace. And that's where she was when this scenario at the museum happened. So I couldn't like get any intel about this Nephilim situation any further. In 2015, the rest of the city of Nimrud was then destroyed by IS, Islamic State militants, who called the shrines and giant statues false idols. A lot of the portraits of the giants are destroyed now. This is the U.S.'s excuse for looting the museum. They were protecting them, which is really hoarding them. Because guess who never gave them back? You gotta love America, right? Now we're going to talk a little bit about Gilgamesh, who is a Babylonian giant folk hero. His story is told in what is called the Book of Giants, part of the Book of Enoch, which is a portion of the Dead Sea Scrolls text. These are supposed to be the censored hidden portions of the Bible. These texts describe how humans and these giant angels, they call watchers, interacted freely, <coughs> and how these giants actually had children with human females. Ooh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Woohoo! These Nephilim are the giant hybrids that resulted from fallen angels mingling with humans. The fallen angels not only banged humans, they also taught us how to work with metals, cosmetics, and make some other useful things like bricks. Hmm. There was a slight problem, however, because apparently the angels corrupted us in the process. Oh, oh no. This is given as the reason for the flood, as in Noah's, as in the destruction of the world. The story says it's a punishment for the abominations that the women bore. Why do they always blame the women? Some bullshit, if you ask me. Anyway. No woman's gonna want to have a giant baby. Ow! So... For real. It, it's not the woman. Screw that. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Yoni's busted out, man. Like... <laughs> man, oof. <laughs> The Enoch texts say that humans live for much longer than normal. A nice side effect of <clears throat> hanging out with the Nephilim, I guess. Enoch was born a thousand years before Noah, and the book reports that his son, Methuselah, name translation is, when he dies, the flood will come. No pressure, yikes. Lived to be 969 years old. That's a lot of pressure. Yeah, yeah, quite a name. The book of Enoch recorded how the giants, including one called Gilgamesh, had prophetic and ominous dreams about the destruction of the world. The book states how Enoch's main effort was to interpret them and intercede on the giant's behalf with God, or what he calls the Lord of Spirits. He was unsuccessful in interceding on the giant's behalf. They were considered fallen and therefore needed to be destroyed. 
The theory is that the Fallen's corruption and damage to this world inevitably doomed it, bringing us to the present state. Thanks a lot, horny Nephilim. (laughs) The story then says that the Archangels are tasked to face the issue. Gabriel has to come kill the hybrids. Michael was sent to bind the Fallen Angels. Raphael was sent to imprison Azazel in Hell. His name translation actually means scapegoat, by the way. Poor bastard. And Uriel (laughs) was sent by God himself to tell Noah about the coming disaster and provide instructions on what to do. Again, in every culture, we have the story of one person or a handful of people surviving a flood by a boat. This is another theme that appears almost universally. The Egyptians had a legend that the gods at one time purified the earth by a great flood. Only a few shepherds escaped by climbing a mountain. The Greek story tells about Deucalion, who was warned by the gods of a flood. He built an ark, and the story also tells of a dove being sent out twice. The Hindu flood story tells of Manu, who builds a ship, but only he alone is saved. The Chinese flood origin story relates how Fahi, founder of the Chinese civilization, escaped a great flood. After man had rebelled against God, Fahi and his three sons, their wives, and Fahi's wife escaped. In England, the Druids had a legend that the world had been repopulated by a righteous man who had been saved in a ship from a great flood. The Polynesian origin story tells of a flood where eight escape in a canoe. And there are stories in more than 100 Native American tribes where one, three, or eight people are saved in a boat that finally sat upon a high mountain as the waters began to subside. First of all, that reminds me of the Misfits. We are 138. Anyway. <laughs> Gilgamesh reminds me of the Smurfs. Yeah, Gargamel. Yeah, me too. Every time. But this is why fighting about religion since the beginning of time makes me so fucking mad. Because if you dig back far enough, it's literally the same thing that's just been distilled in different ways, different cultures, different symbols, no matter which one you look at. That is so true. The story of the flood is just one example. There are so many more. From the Ten Commandments being largely borrowed from the ancient Egyptian and Mesopotamian religious traditions, think Book of the Dead, to Christmas and the Druids, to the ancient apocalypse story that significantly parallels Zoroastrianism, the oldest recorded religion, story of the final renovation of the universe, All these stories have been regurgitated. Now, here's the wacky part. During all of Hillary Clinton's email, like, yes, yes, we don't, but her emails, like, fuck off with that shit. That's not what I'm talking about. (laughs) But during all of that, there was a leak on December 13, 2018, that had an email that had a subject line, quote, Requesting documents pertaining to the resurrection chamber of Gilgamesh, the location of his body, and the location of the buried Nephilim. Now, that email is 100% authentic. That's amazing. So what does it say in the email? No one knows. Which is really interesting. I'll put a link to where you can see the email for yourself, Freedom of Information Act. You can't actually read it, but you can see the subject line. And you can see what you think. Yeah, that's pretty weird. What does Hillary Clinton know that we don't? Oh, God, probably so much. None of it good. <laughs> but, of course, every ridiculous fucking conspiracy podcast in the world talked all this shit about how the Iraq War was a smokescreen for New World Order to get this resurrection chamber for the sleeping Nephilim giant is going to enslave us all and, you know, whatever. For more on that, we would like to point you to the last Magical Jobcat message warning everyone about the dangers of the Anunnaki. <laughs> so, was Gilgamesh... 
the name of a military operation? Or is there some other weird explanation we're just not thinking of? Who knows why this U.S. government was supposedly looking for the secret resurrection chamber for a pissed off, bloodthirsty, sleeping Nephilim? Well, Nephilim would be a serious weapon for sure. I mean, yeah, for real. But another note, Sumerians, jinn, spelled with a D sometimes, are thought to possibly be the same phenomenon as the Nephilim because they're also similarly linked to the serpent in the black dog symbols. There are cultural links to Gilgamesh at ancient serpent mounds also. In ancient Sumer, the word din, D-I-N, meant righteous. The full word for God is dinger, and it meant the righteous ones of the bright pointed objects. Now, if you look at the role of judge that dinger plays, jinn with a D and dinger might, they think, linguists believe, share the same root word of This belief mirrors later Egyptian lore with Anubis and the judgment process in the afterlife. But we're getting ahead of ourselves just a little bit. That's that judgment. We told you, judgment, right in the beginning of this episode. So Egypt's on deck, I promise. But first, let's talk about what they call Israel's Stonehenge, or the Gilgo Rephim, which is a megalithic astronomical complex that's built of loose stones. Now, in ancient Sumerian, Gilgo Rephim translates roughly to Palace of the Ancestor Giants, or Big House of the Ancestor Healers. Now, the Rephim is supposedly a certain caste of healers and shamans that were within the tribe of Nephilim. And they were the vessels of this ancestral art of healing that came from these half-angel giants. There are some biblical texts talking about these two-horned dead healing shades that occupy the underworld and have magical powers over death. Nephilim giants are further discussed in Gnostic, Kabbalah, and Hebrew texts also. Yes, the Rephim are dead. That's the important part. If I didn't point that out enough to you guys, these are shades that live in the underworld that do magic, death magic. So anyway, clearly, I don't believe this shit about a resurrected evil Sumerian Nephilim bullshit, but it did lead me to dig deeper into what they call Gnostic beliefs about bricks and a happy accident because I dug into who is the goddess Asherah. Judeo-Christian traditions actually teach that God, Yahweh, once had a wife. Asherah figures prominently as the wife of El, the supreme god, in cuneiform texts found in the second millennium port city of Ugarit. You know, we love that El shit because Tenny's into that El shit. That's why he used the L in his name, right? That's right. So some of the translations of Asherah's name include the Queen of Heaven, the Queen of the Nephilim, and Asheroth Karnaim, which means Asherah of the Two Horns. This mention of horns could also refer to what they call the new moon, Ashtaroth of the Crescent Moon. She is also the Canaanite, has to do with snakes, goddess of the sea, and their main mother goddess. Other names she's known by are Astarte and Ishtar. Remember the Babylonian gate's other name? The gate of Ishtar? Yep. We're back to the Babylonian gate. The huge gate that was built for gods was built for God's wife. And another translation of her name, Asherah, means sacred tree. You know who else has a tree of life or a sacred tree? Oh, almost every other main religion. Oh, ever from Egyptian, Kabbalah, Nordic, Buddhist Bodhi tree, pagan Celtic tree, Hindu Madhubani tree of life, just for starters. Some religious scholars claim that the cult of the Minoan snake goddess, who was identified with Ariadne, translation, the utterly pure, was similar to the cult of Astarte. 
Her cult as Aphrodite was then transmitted to Scythera and then on to Greece. Herodotus wrote about the religious community of Aphrodite originated in Phoenicia and came to Greece from there. He also wrote about the world's largest temple for Aphrodite, which was in one of the Phoenician cities. So her name may have changed, but she was worshipped in many cultures. And that's a basic history of some early important brick projects and their related gods and goddesses including God's wife, connected to them. Bricks have been a big deal since forever. And geographically, right next door to the Babylonian Empire was the Kemetic or Egyptian Empire, which is where my current major interest and focus is. Now, way back in episode one, Andrea and I were talking about Egypt. Long before I started to recognize, I was having direct experiences with what I call magical bricks. The Egyptian magic brick experience actually begins at the moment of a person's birth when their mother is squatting over what they call the sacred birth bricks. Vienna's National Library holds a unique document, a fragmentary sheet of paper from the 11th century Vienna containing the following short magical texts. The names of the three bricks upon which Mary gave birth, Akramak, Aramak, and then AKR. Why is this text so priceless? Well, it seems to attest to the use of birth bricks in 11th century Egypt and discusses their association in Egyptian Christianity with the birth of Jesus. This means that Jesus was probably born right between a stack of bricks, y'all. In 2001, the American Egyptologist Joseph Wegner discovered the only birth brick known to survive over the years from ancient Egypt in a mayoral residence in Abydos, dating to the Middle Kingdom. This birth brick is made of unbaked clay and it is decorated with several images. On the bottom of the brick, a seated woman, thought to be Hathor, is nursing a child, thought to be Horus, and there's a woman behind her, could be Nephthys and another in front of her, perhaps Isis. The scene is then flanked by Hathor-headed emblems on tree trunks. The images on the four other sides of the brick show protective symbols and figures of the same kind as those carved on Egyptian magical wands, which were also used during childbirth. There is one of these magical protective tusk wands used in the birthing process from 1981 to 1640 BCE in, yep, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. New York City! Again! Now, according to comedic belief, Meshkadet, who's the goddess of childbirth, and she was the creator of each child's ka, which is considered a part of their soul, which she breathed into them at their moment of birth. Meshkadet was worshipped from the earliest times by Egyptians. These sacred birth bricks linked to her continue to be important throughout an Egyptian's life. Her bricks followed you, protecting you, witnessing and recording your deeds all the way through death and beyond. In the underworld, they looked slightly different. Meshkanet bricks were also an important part of the afterlife trials that an Egyptian faced. Meshkanet is present at your what they call afterbirth in the afterlife to breathe life into you for a second time, just like she was at your human birth. And one of the ways that she's depicted is as an animated, floating, magical brick. Several depictions of Meshkanet bricks have been discovered in New Kingdom era royal and high official tombs. The ideal appearance as to what these birth bricks that were to be placed in tombs should look like is described in spells 151 and 137 of the Book of the Dead. They're supposed to be made of unbaked clay on which a magical spell should be engraved and have a hole made to hold the brick in the wall of the burial chamber. We'll talk more about the Book of the Dead in a bit. These magic bricks are then carefully positioned at the four cardinal compass points of the tomb, north, south, east, and west. Each of these cardinal points was associated with one of the four sons of Horus. Horus, of course, was the son of Isis, 
Ishtar, and Osiris, and himself was the god of the sun and the sky. Hmm, you think Horus might be equal to Jesus, y'all? The four sons of Horus were shown on the canopic jars, which stored the large human organs that held the viscera of liver, lungs, stomach, and intestines, which were all extricated during the process of mummification. Each of the sons was associated with one of the cardinal points of the compass, and they were in turn protected by other powerful female gods. Happy, who was associated with the north, is depicted in baboon form and was also under the protection of Nephthys. Imseti, who was associated with the south and is depicted as a man-headed god and is under the protection of Isis. Duamutef, who was associated with the east and is depicted in jackal form and is under the protection of Mieth. Kabesinef, who was associated with the west and is depicted in hawk form and is also under the protection of Circuit. The four sons of Horus also offered protection to the pharaoh according to the spells that were written on each of the four magic bricks in the tomb. These bricks were then topped with one of four magical amulets. A Shapti figure was intended to go on top of the North Brick. A Shapti figure is a clay figure that's provided as something to be your workforce for use in the afterlife. Shaptis are a whole thing too, because guess who had one before this whole Egypt stuff ever kicked off? Yeah, me. Of course you did. A torch was to go on the South Brick. A jackal, like Anubis, went on top of the East Brick, and a Deid pillar was to be placed on the West Brick. The Deid Pillar is a vertical object with at least four crossbars, sometimes portrayed with human arms and holding the royal regalia. It's a sign for stability. Magical bricks were also used to protect a temple during construction, and like in tombs, were connected to the protection from four cardinal directions. Does this sound familiar? Like maybe calling the four corners witches? Mm-hmm. We thought so. So I recently got to see a Jiet omelette in person from one of Queen Nefertari's four burial bricks in Portland. And I had a lot of feelings about it as it had a lot of personal significance for me because Jiet itself is synchronicity hell. So we'll talk more about Shoptis and Jiet's more in depth in the Patreon companion to this episode 24.5 because it's involved with some really personal stuff to me. And I'm just not comfortable sharing literally everything about my life with strangers, believe it or not. But I will tell the Holy Donut cult because so far that seems to be our people. Our people. Egyptian life was centered around preparing for death, not because they were particularly morbid, but extensive planning was needed to make sure they survived the many perilous trials of the underworld to emerge victorious forever in the afterlife. The goal was to live happily in the field of reeds, the Egyptian version of heaven, with Osiris, the green god of the underworld forever, Shrek intensifies. Green is the color of rebirth. Mm -hmm. Sometimes Osiris is shown colored black, like Anubis, symbolizing the black soil of the Nile that flooded yearly, creating the fertile lands that the Egyptian depended on for survival. Yeah, so screw everybody that said people that wear black are negative. Like, black is not a bad thing in Egyptian culture, y'all. Yeah, and and was it black is like the continuation of all the colors in the universe, basically? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So anyway... Egyptians were the first goss. I that's think. right. Anyway. That's, oh, so much, <laughs> so much eyeliner. So much eyeliner. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so Osiris was a brother of Horus the Elder, who was father of Horus the Younger, and the consort of Isis. There's a couple of Horuses in there. That's a little confusing. We already talked about her earlier. Queen of Heaven, remember? So Osiris's origin story is kind of wild. It's a little too long to get into very in-depth with this episode, but the TLDR is basically that Osiris's brother Set murdered him out of jealousy. One of the stories says it was due to infidelity with his wife, and then angrily threw pieces of his body all over the world so he would be destroyed forever. Isis asks her nephew Anubis for help. 
Anubis was the black jackal, who was actually worshipped as the first god of the dead, before he vacated the throne to allow Osiris to rule the underworld. Anubis helped her out magically creating the first mummy out of Osiris's parts. There was a slight problem, however, because some of the stories say that Set actually went full Lorraine of Bobbitt and threw <laughs> Osiris's penis away and it was eaten by fish. Uh, so I was just had to then do some magic to pull the god sperm out of the water <laughs> and then created the new baby, which is Horus <laughs> the Younger. Okay, then. Yeah, I know, really. Okay, but there are even <laughs> mummies that have wrapped phalluses that reflect this belief. Yeah, there's there's mummy dick um <laughs> so uh, you know it kind of fits in with the christmas dick i don't know anyway so what about the shrek dick <laughs> I, I don't even want to know i don't think anyway so of course horace the younger is going to take revenge on his dad's behalf i mean i did take revenge on my dad's behalf too somebody did that mm-hmm. shit to him and he kills set so this is when queen isis whose name also means throne or she of the throne would take the place of the true king in greco egypt she was sometimes called the dark goddess and goddess of hell, and was also often depicted carrying a phallic object, the king's severed penis, disguised as a fish. Hey, witches, guess where the concept of the maypole came from? Yeah, if you ever wondered why Isis is walking around carrying a big old fish, that's why. Yeah. It's dead <laughs> Osiris schlong, swear to God. <laughs> the next thing that we should probably cover, now that we uncover the important part, is, no, is the Egyptian belief that the soul is of the utmost importance over everything else. And ancient Egyptians had their own complex ideas about what makes up the human soul. And their beliefs basically involved that the soul is divided into nine parts. I am absolutely not an expert on this particular subject. Mortellus the Bagan Slayer is, however. And this could, again, be an episode completely by itself because it's very complex. So I'm going to try to drill it down. Basically, eight of these parts of the soul were considered to be immortal and passed into the afterlife, no problems. The eighth part, which is called the cot, was the physical body that was left behind at a person's death. This part, the cot, was just as important as the other eight to preserving your soul. And this was the reason for the focus on mummification. You, They had a belief that you needed a body to make it over to the afterlife. This is what makes what Set did to Osiris so horrific. After death, the body was then considered a link to the essence of the person who had once inhabited it. And offerings of food and drink were regularly left with the body as it was believed the soul could absorb nutrients this way. So if you didn't leave offerings for your ancestors, you were really screwing them over in the afterlife. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And besides the cock, another of the nine parts of the soul that's important to this discussion is what they call the jib or the heart. It's spelled J-B. Egyptians saw this as the home of emotions, thoughts, will, and attentions. Again, they're referring to the actual physical heart as this part of the soul. And they believed it was the final key to attaining the happiness in the afterlife. Now, if you think about later religion and the translations, even with Catholics, you know, the sacred heart, Mother yep. Joseph of the sacred heart, there's yep. this heart thing appears again and again. The ba part of the soul was depicted as a human headed bird, which could speed between earth and the heavens and specifically between the afterlife and one's corpse. Each ba was linked to a particular body and the ba would hover over the corpse after death, but it could also travel to the afterlife, visit with the gods, or return to earth to those places the person had loved in life. 
It is believed this is where the mythical phoenix sibyl originated. Osiris's soul, or rather his ba, the part of the soul that can travel back and forth like a bird, was occasionally worshipped in its own right, almost as if it were a distinct god. This aspect of Osiris was referred to as the Banabjid, literally the ba of the lord of the jid, which roughly means the soul of the lord of the pillar of continuity. And jid is a type of pillar and is understood as being the backbone of Osiris. So what did the underworld journey that an Egyptian spent their whole life preparing for actually look like? We know a lot about this due to the survival of copies of what is called the Book of the Dead. The Book of the Dead is an ancient funerary text, typically written on papyrus, used during the New Kingdom, which was from around 1550 BCE to around 50 BCE. The book's original title translates to Book of Coming Forth by Day, or the Book of Emerging Forth into the Light. The text consists of a number of magic spells that will assist the deceased on the journey through what they call the Duat, or the underworld and into the afterlife field of reeds to be with Osiris. There are 192 spells that are known and they are designed to remind the deceased about mystical knowledge in the afterlife, help with identifying the deceased as true believers to the gods, and basically to help the deceased navigate and control the hazards of the afterlife journey. The biggest message here is the same as in most other magical texts. The power of the spoken word can affect your reality in great ways, and knowledge is power. A number of these spells are instructions on how to create or activate magical amulets that help protect the deceased from harm. These small amulets were sometimes wrapped in the wrappings of a mummy itself. And remember when I told you Mortellus pointed out I was doing some stuff from the Book of the Dead and I didn't Aww. know it? Huh? Turns out I've been making some brick protection amulets for quite a while now, even before I knew Mortellus. And there's a lot more to this story to tell, and we, I know we keep saying it, but hit the bonus up for the rest of this if it interests you. A Book of the Dead was placed inside the coffin or burial chamber of the deceased. Some of the spells were also written and painted on tomb walls to help out. There were other complementary instructional spells painted on the inside of coffins called the coffin texts. Most of these books of the dead were all unique. There wasn't a set style or structure to them. Book of the Dead papyri were often made up of the work of several different scribes and artists whose work was literally pasted together. And like everything else, more money to spend on your books equated to some better planning and therefore better odds in surviving the perilous afterlife journey. If you were wealthy, your book was highly personalized, had some custom painted and recognizable depictions of yourself on the journey. The middle classes could buy books that were a little more generic and had spaces for them to fill in their and their loved ones' names and contain the basic spells to get you through. It's only from the 26th dynasty onwards was there any sort of defined order to the information inside the books of the dead. And the chapters were generally organized into four sections. In chapters 1 through 16, the deceased enters the tomb and descends to the underworld, and the body regains its powers of movement and speech. In chapters 17 through 63, explanations of the mythic origins of the gods and places are discussed, and the deceased is made to live again so they may arise and be reborn again with the morning sun. In chapters 64 through 129, the deceased travels across the sky in the sun arc as one of the blessed dead, in the evening, the deceased travels to the underworld to appear before Osiris. And then finally, chapters 130 through 189, having been vindicated, the deceased assumes power in the universe as one of the gods themselves. This section also includes assorted chapters on protective amulets, provisions of food, and important places to know about. 
The final trial in the underworld journey is in chapter 125, when Anpu or Anubis leads the deceased over to the scale for their final judgment before Osiris. The last major test to pass is when the heart of the deceased is weighed against the goddess Mott's feather of truth. The deceased is accused of terrible misdeeds and declares their innocence to a row of gods and goddesses gathered to observe. No pressure, right? God. Yikes. It's horrible. <laughs> yeah, and if your heart weighs more than the feather of Mott, which is also known as the feather of truth because you were an asshole in your life you're in serious trouble right about now yeah one of the most famous depictions of this moment is from a book of the dead called the papyrus of ani which was discovered by sir ea wallace budge in 1888 and taken to the british museum check out the show notes to have a peek at who's depicted just above ani's head in the scale just floating chilling <laughs> watching the hot heart lay in action that's magic brick goddess meshkanet meshkanet floating in the air telling the gods all your secrets and apparently it's her scale you're facing yeah guess whose scale it is it's meshkanets oh. so this brick goddess who's witnessed every single second of your life from your birth until right now so good luck fucking lying if you <laughs> fucked around you are about to find out and guess what if your heart is heavier because of all the misdeeds you did then mott's feather of truth heavier than a feather y'all your demon lunch demon lunch your soul no longer exists. You're gone forever into the stomach of a hungry hippo, crocodile, lion, demon. That's right. Her name's Amit and you lose. That's right. The bricks are going to judge us all, motherfuckers. Now, is that not the most perfect thing in the whole world? Well, it could be perfect. It could. It could be perfect. Or it could be absolutely not perfect since they're currently sitting around my house watching me. <laughs> well, recently I was lucky <laughs> enough to actually see a Book of the Dead that had these magical Meshkanet bricks. Not all versions have these bricks depicting her. Again, full bricks with the full thing depended on money, right? But I got to see one in person at the Portland Art Museum. We'll tell you more about that and also the Diet amulet I got to see from one of the four magical bricks, the burial bricks in Queen Nefertari's tomb in Patreon episode 24.5. By the way, Holy Donut cult members will be getting postcards of this scale scene in March. That's right. Egypt for everyone. Egypt for everyone. For just five bucks, you get bonus episodes, magic bricks in the mail. Turns out, though, this is what I found out. It was really interesting because it's pretty common in Egyptian art to see things that aren't human magically animated like these bricks and floating, hanging out with the other gods in the afterlife. Not only were there magical bricks, there were other things like magical floating papyrus depicted too. Hmm. The palette of the first pharaoh, King Narmer, circa 3100 to 3000 BC, probably used to mix cosmetics, which were used by all genders in their culture, depicts the unification of Upper and Lower Egypt under the king. On the palette, we not only have serpents, we have Horus, perched above some floating papyrus flowers, which are a symbol for Lower Egypt. The falcon is drawing a rope out of the face on the floating papyrus, pulling power and life from it to give to the king. Check out the show notes if you'd like to see it. It's amazing. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Episode 24.5, and Patreon is also going to get more into this papyrus business and how papyri itself ended up being a major synchronicity bomb for all of this around this too. And you can hear Andrea scream about her birthday present. <laughs> no, it's true. I scream. Yeah, but that's like pure crack dopamine. Like for real. It's, <laughs> you know. We also know more about Egyptian life and their brick making process from tomb paintings that were discovered by archaeologists 
An eighth dynasty Egyptian noble named Rekmir constructed a lavishly decorated tomb for himself in the Theban necropolis that had lots of well-preserved paintings that detailed important parts of normal Egyptian life, including brickmaking. Mm. A tempera painting of the tomb's brick-making scene by Nina DeGaris-Davies ended up in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. New York City! Again! I know. They do have the largest collection of Egyptian artifacts in the U.S., but they also happen to be the place where Ken, a future podcast guest, a new friend of mine, who I'm calling my East Coast doppelganger, actually works, too. So it's a bit of a synchronicity. Oh, and Janet gave me some magnets for Christmas that she found from years ago from the Met of Egyptian stuff. From the museum. Yes. So it's like, bam, 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 bam. Very interesting. Anyway. So bricks were also an important magical tool that Egyptians used to help protect tombs. In 1922, when Howard Carter found the tomb of King Tutankhamun, kicking off worldwide Egyptian mania, inside the tomb of treasures was one of the magic bricks of burial. This brick's inscription is what led to quote the curse of the pharaohs, as the ominous message on the Anubis shrine that held the magical brick stated, It is I who hinder the sand from choking the secret chamber, and who would repel him with a desert flame. I have set aflame the desert, I have caused the path to be mistaken. I am for the protection of the deceased. That's pretty good, right? Yeah, that's really good. I kind of want it on my wall, but I don't know if that'd be a good idea. Right? That's like, fuck around and find out. (laughs) Paint it on my wall. Why not? I am the protection of the deceased. (laughs) You will be the bitch now. And I'll talk like this forever. A few months after the opening of Tut's tomb, a series of deaths of the people involved in the tomb's opening began. The financial backer of the excavation, Lord Carnivon, was the first of several in quick succession. Whispers about how the brick's stern warning was the cause of the trouble began to inflame imaginations. We talked a little bit before how even cursed mummies were rumored to haunt the local Portland, Oregon Saturday market, looking for their stolen gold that was brought here in the 1920s. In 1892, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, author of Sherlock Holmes published a short story called Lot Number 249, featuring a reanimated mummy. The story profoundly influenced horror films throughout the 20th century. Doyle inflamed the Tut's curse rumors further by suggesting that an evil elemental from the tomb was to blame for Carnarvon's death rather than the actual causes of blood poisoning and pneumonia. Yeah, by the way, birds aren't real, duh. Other warnings found on bricks and tombs say things like, It is to you that I speak, all people who will find this tomb passage. Watch out not to take even a pebble from within and outside. If you find this stone, you shall not transgress against it. Fuck around and find (laughs) out. Of course, a lot of these beliefs that have to do with bricks were then later adapted for use in Freemasonry, Christianity, and even Mormonism throughout time. But it all links back to early beliefs in the magic of bricks of Babylon and Egypt. Yep, I already told Holy Donut cult members this before, but basically it turns out that hidden bricks and all bricks belong to the living for a while, but really they belong to the dead. This doesn't make them scary, by the way. Figuring this out just made a lot of things clearer for me, including better how to use them in my magical practices. That's right. Another small Egypt synchro regarding brick magic. The Ebers Papyrus, an Egyptian medical papyrus of herbal knowledge, written in 1550 BC, describes the medical use of brick dust. That's awesome. I'd never heard of that before. Wait, 
What's happening? Two Witches Podcast is pleased to bring you a message from our first official correspondent, astrology wizard, Maitland Kelly. That's right, Weird Astrology is back to give us a mini lesson about what makes John Keel's astrology so unique. Hello there, wonderful listeners. I've got a little astro debunking treat for you. So I've been working on a project for my own Patreon on uh, Mothman sightings. So I have been reading the Mothman Prophecies, of course, by John Keel, and I found an error in it. He made a little mistake. So on page 133 and 134, John Keel is talking about how he had a really interesting UFO encounter. He said it was his best sighting yet, and he stayed in the area for a little while longer to see what would happen, and he noted that the moon was supposed to rise at 1.59 a.m., but it did not rise, and he thought that was very odd. So he stayed in the area and waited and waited until 3.30 a.m. when he finally left. The moon was still not there. So he doesn't exactly say that this is directly related to aliens, he just finds it odd. Well, there is a very simple explanation why Mr. Keel did not see the moon that night. And that is because the moonrise time is 3.30 a.m. the minute he left. <laughs> so he could have gotten the day wrong or maybe the data from the almanac he was checking out wasn't correct or for a different time zone or something like that. But the moon did not rise until 3.30 a.m. So because he was in the middle of West Virginia, and that is like not exactly flat land, he probably wouldn't have seen the moon until a little bit after that, so like maybe 3.45ish. I just found it really interesting that he left right when it was rising. This is why all paranormal investigators should have an amateur astronomer slash professional astrologer friend, because we can help you with this sort of thing. You got any weird space sightings that could be easily debunked? Send them my way. I'm very curious. You can join me on Patreon to hear more about the Mothman Prophecies project that I'm working on, as well as a whole bunch of other stuff. Patreon.com slash weirdastrology. That's all I got for ya. Maidlin Kelly signing off. Bye bye Thanks, Maitland, for bringing us this Weird Astrology special report. You can visit Maitland's website at https mmkelly.space where you can read more about the astrology of Hellier. Yep, they're the one that was featured in Hellier and Phenomenacon 3. Or look for them on Twitter at weird underscore astrology to harness some of this astrology wizard's knowledge for yourself. And now back to our regularly scheduled episode. Next episode, after we talked about all that heavy spiritual stuff, we're going to lighten it up just a bit. Some of our friends from past episodes are going to join us for an update we are lovingly calling the Shrek Roundtable. Because if you haven't been cursed yet, it's about to happen this time. All hail the mighty green lord! Our buddy Janice Click from episodes 9 and 10 has a brand new movie out about what he calls a fat-ass werewolf. This ought to be hilarious. I'm sure. And also, my own personal Teddy, he of the perfect hair, A.P. Strange, will be coming back to talk about all of the synchronicity magics that has to do with Egypt that's also been happening with him about this Shrek business, too. Rounding out the Chaos crew, we are thrilled to finally have Shell from The Void with Jazz joining us, too. 
Yeah, we love Shell. This should be such a good time. Shell's the only person I know that has been Shrek cursed as frequently as I have. Yes, I can't wait for this. This should be hilariously fun. The conversation's going to be wonderful. Plus, just like A.B. Strange always says, hilarious magic is the best magic. By the way, if you haven't listened to <laughs> AP and Shell's recent joint interview with Alan fucking Greenfield on episode 42 <laughs> of The Void with Jazz, do so. My sides literally hurt from laughing and I will absolutely never be able to hear the Green Acres theme song ever again without cracking up. AFG, Alan fucking Greenfield actually has agreed to come talk to us on an episode of Two Witches, which is amazing. Yep, but you know, because I'm fucking greedy and everybody knows, obviously this is how much I love fucking Tenny. I have a beautiful vision. A beautiful vision. Of having the two of them, Alan fucking Greenfield and John E.L. Tenny, human encyclopedias alternately pulling questions out of a hat and having a good-natured shit-talking session where literally anything could and would happen. How amazing would that be? I need it. Me too. Come on. I've always said if Michigan Gandalf is Mario, then AFG is Wario. And having them both could like open a wormhole or something totally amazing. Come on, Teddy. Quit torturing me. Please come talk to us. I'll send you the Google-eyed bear. John, we love you. Let us send you the bear. And just for an extra tease, you will be receiving your own special copy of a lovely paperback called Safe Travels in Bear Country by Gary Brown. What? Oh, you just sweetened the deal? Oh, God. But can you imagine the goblins? Oh, massive, massive goblins, right? Yes, yes. And I guess this is probably our early announcement. This is probably going to be our last season of Two Witches Podcast. We're aiming for 10 regular eps and 10 bonus eps for patrons at this point. So maybe we could get the big show off as like our send off. I don't know. Yeah, we'll make it great. We'll make it great. So join the cult while you still can. Does this make us a limited edition cult? Hmm, I don't know. That's a good question, actually. We sent out our second mojo bag for February patrons, full of all kinds of lavender goodness. That's right. And we grew it herself in her garden. And even MJ helped us work on this month's welcome gift for $10 and up patrons. It turns out she's actually kind of into this witch stuff. <laughs> Oh no. Hilarious. But really, who knows what will happen this month when patrons get the next round of prizes that have to do with brick magic. Oh yeah, that's right. All kinds of Egypt love in there. And again, just five bucks, you'll get a good old meshkin it in your mailbox. So I love that. Meshkin it in your mailbox. That's right. Bonus episodes. All mm -hmm. the vintage magic. Yeah, you can find links to our Patreon on our Two Witches profile at Two Witches Pod. We also want to give a shout out to our beloved Holy Donut Cult members, Jennifer, Danny, Megan, Kirix, Aiden, Garrett, Shell, Elizabeth, Diane, and Joe. We absolutely could not do this without you. All of our love and donuts, and may Saint Mojo continue to provide. Oh, and fuck you, Putin. We all knew you were an asshole since Pussy Riot. Thanks again for joining us. Until next time, take care of yourself. And don't be an asshole because... The magic bricks will judge us all. <laughs> <laughs> Dear Lord. <laughs> <laughs>